Turn that one down. A little bit different than the previous ones in this series. In the very last lessons that we've had prior to this in the series of Leviticus, going over the sacrifices of Leviticus, we saw how they would foreshadow Jesus. These were sacrifices with a primary purpose for the atonement of sin, or so that forgiveness of sins would be realized. But there were other sacrifices that were given. In fact, in Leviticus chapters 1 and 2, which is where I'll be coming from, as we survey these, we find two that... In one, we know there was nothing about atonement. And in the first one, the atonement was really minimal. And we'll see that as it develops, because atonement was not the primary purpose. We're going to follow basically the same pattern. We will look at the rituals themselves to some degree and how they point toward the realities that were fulfilled in Christ. Then we'll see how we should respond and what it really means for us. You know, as I tried to develop my introduction, I toyed with thinking about how can I really do this? At one level, I think the Israelites had it maybe in some ways easier in these sacrifices. Yes, it was bloody, it was hard, it was detailed and all of that, and I understand that. But it was something tangible. The sad thing is, even though they had something tangible to do, it was very difficult for them to see the realities that they were pointing to. And so, as we look at the sacrifices that we see today, is again, keep in your minds that we're trying to see how these are fulfilled in Christ and also in us, because it's important. The sacrifices we'll be talking about today would be the burnt offering and the peace offering. They were sacrifices that had to be offered by someone who was in fellowship with God. Henceforth, in the burnt offering, atonement was minimal. So if they had sin, they had to deal with that first. Either by offering a sin offering or a trespass offering, or maybe both. But the burnt offering is very important in what it was foreshadowing. So the burnt offering was considered the first and most important sacrifice in Israel. As we read in Leviticus chapter 1, starting in verse 3, he talks about the burnt offering. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that it may, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull, the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron's, the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head, the fat, on the wood that is on the fire, but its entrails and its legs it shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to God. We could go on and read about if it was a sacrifice from the flock, 
Basically, it would be the similar, it would be very similar, but it would have just some unique little differences. Its sacrifice was given exclusively to God. It was received by God alone. Some of the sacrifices, as we learned, were shared in by the priests, maybe even by the worshiper himself. But Leviticus chapter 1 is all about the burnt offering, also sometimes referred to as the whole burnt offering, to impart to us the fact that the entirety of the animal was burned to God. The selection was important. It had to be a male, had to be an animal from the herd of the flock. It had to be an animal that they raised. It had to be domesticated. They could not go out into the wild and capture an an animal and bring it to the altar of God. Because then it wouldn't be a voluntary sacrifice. The animal had nothing to do with it. Now, in the case where it came from the flock or the herd, still the animal had nothing to do with it, but it represents the worshiper and what he is doing before God. But it also had to be without blemish. It had to be pure. The worshiper in this case was going to give the very best of the best that he had. But there's something unique in the burnt offering. The burnt offering, the sacrifice was not seen as being destroyed or even burned before God. It is known as what is called a sweet savor sacrifice or a fragrant aroma. As the fire consumed the sacrifice, in the mind of the Israelite, it was ascending to heaven to God himself. Uh, So the animal was not considered a victim because the transference, this was the worshiper who was himself imparting himself wholly to God. As I said and read in, I think it was in verse four or five, atonement shall be made for him, but atonement is minimal. That's not the focus. The worshiper is in a covenant relationship with God. He may have sinned and offered a sin offering, a trespass offering, as I alluded to earlier. But the the burnt offering, atonement, is minimal. But because it's a blood sacrifice, there is still some aspect of this sacrifice having a little bit of atonement in it. Sin is always an issue before God. And no matter what one has to do, there has to be some sort of atonement. And even in the burnt offering, though atonement was minimal, it was still there in the mind of the Israelite. So what's going on with the burnt offering? The burnt offering, the primary focus was one of consecration. It symbolizes the total consecration of the worshiper to God. In a sense, the worshiper was saying, this is me. I'm bringing this bull, this goat, this ram. I lay my hands on it. And it's killed before you. This is me. This animal is totally given for your pleasure. And I want my life to be given to you for your pleasure. Now, along with the individual burnt offering, we also see that the nation of Israel had Two continual burnt offerings, twice daily in the morning and the evening, there was always an offering on the altar before God. 
The fire was never to go out. It was always to be a sweet aroma. The consecration of the nation of Israel going up before the Lord. Showing their devotion to God. And that's what the worshiper was doing when he brought an individual sacrifice of a burnt offering before the Lord. He was saying, Lord, this is me. This is my life. I give myself wholly and completely to you for your pleasure. Now, the second one we read about in chapter 2. It is called the grain offering. Now, there's some significant differences here. The biggest difference here is that it was not a blood sacrifice. In Leviticus chapter 2, turn back. When anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it, put frankincense on it, and bring it to the sons of Aaron's priests. And he shall take from it a handful of fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense, and the priest shall burn incense. And, and, and the priest shall burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to God. But for the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It's a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. And he goes into the details about it. So there's some differences we see right away between the burnt offering and the grain offering. There was no confession of sin. It was a gift of gratitude to God. When the Israelite was feeling thankful before God, and they wanted to express the joy of their thanksgiving to God, they would bring a grain offering. The Hebrew word for the offering here is korban. This defines both the grain and the drink offering. Um, But as I said earlier, no animals were slain. No bloodshed was involved. So the grain offering was truly that gift. It was offered up on a fire on the altar to God as a sweet savor, a sweet aroma to God. It was strictly a gift given to God as one's worship. Again, it had to be from the worshiper. Only cultivated grains could be given. You know, when I grew up, I remember one of my favorite foods, my uncle who lived up in North Dakota would somewhere get it, and it was wild rice. Well, this is not really rice, but that's what they call it. But I really liked that. But that couldn't be given because that was taken from out in the wild. You didn't plant it. You didn't tend it. You didn't care for it. It had to be something that you raised. It took a tenth of an ephah of fine flour. As I recall, I think that's maybe a quart or two. Maybe about two quarts of flour. It was symbolic of completeness. They would take that flour. They would mix it with some oil, some frankincense, some salt. Make it into a little cake. That salt showing it was salt of the covenant. The basic thrust was the consecration and dedication of all that the worshiper had belonged to God. The offering essentially said, God, all that I have, I give to you. In Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 6 through 5, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 5, 
No, 5 through 11, excuse me. Deuteronomy 5 through 11. The Jew, the faithful Israelite, when they were coming in, offering their first fruits and tithes, my heading says, chapter 26. It says, and you shall make, a, make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down to, into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there became a nation great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid us on hard on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror and with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it before, down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that your God has given to you, to your house, you and the Levite, and the sojourner who is among you. In the word offering, you are offering yourself. In the grain offering, you are offering everything that you have. Generally, the drink offering is here would accompany the grain offering. It symbolizes the worshiper pouring himself out on the altar for God in this gift, which is given as an act of worship. But you see, both of these are a foreshadowing of Jesus. As we look at the grain offering, we are the first fruits for Jesus we are the first fruits of Christ. As Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, But thanks be to God, who in Christ leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. We are the aroma of Christ. We are His offering before God. We are the, his gift of a fragrant offering before God. James chapter 1, of his own kind, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Verse 18. In the Revelation letter, there is in chapter 16, chapter 14, excuse me, speaking of the 144,000, in verse 4, John says, These have been redeemed. For mankind is the first fruits for God. And the lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. The first fruits of Christ. When Jesus came, he lived among us, he worked among us, he taught us, and he offers us those who are obedient to him, to God, as their first fruits, his first fruits. But what about us? Spiritually, when we offer the grain offering, We've done so today. Our presence here, the songs that we sing, the fruit of our lips, the praise to God. We've done so in our contributions. In Philippians chapter 4, excuse me, I'll get to there. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul says to the church in Philippi, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. 
So when you gave your contribution, that's a gift of your first fruits. That's why we lay by in store on the first day of the week. That's why we give of what God has given to us. But how does that all come about? Well, Paul would go on and talk and commend the congregation of his people in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You see, the church in Macedonia was, well, they were impoverished. He says in verse chapter 8, verse 1 and following, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Part B. Sorry about that. For they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the, of the saints. And this, not of the, as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So we have a congregation. We have one that's in need. Jerusalem church was experiencing a famine. Paul has been preaching in this area. And there's a church there in Macedonia. A group of Christians who are suffering. And they don't have much to give. They really don't have anything to give. A severe test of affliction. Yet their extreme... uh, The abundance of joy in their extreme poverty overflowed with a wealth of generosity. They gave according to their means, so they had some means, but they gave beyond their means. That's a first fruit. That's saying, God, you have blessed me greatly, and I want to give to you to say thank you. And I have brothers and sisters elsewhere. I have them in Jerusalem, and they're in dire straits. And you have blessed me, and I want to give you myself and all that I have. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, first fruit offerings would include praise, confession, doing good, sharing. It's what we've been doing here as we gather together today. And when Christians gather together and they do those things. So this is a picture of giving and sharing and praising, doing good. It's our act of worship before God. When we give, we acknowledge that everything that we have belongs to God. We know that the psalmist said that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns it all. But we acknowledge before God when we give, saying, God, you're in control. Everything that I have is yours, and I give it to you. And the third and final offering that we're going to look at today is that of the peace offering. This is in Leviticus chapter 3. Some of it's also referred to in chapter 7. And as we, as I get out of Corinthians and back into Leviticus and then chapter 3, the heading says laws for the peace offering. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offerings. If he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So again, we have some atonement in this because it's a blood sacrifice and he lays his hands on it. 
tells us how the Aaron's sons shall throw the blood on the altar against the sides of the altar and the sacrifice of peace offerings as a food offering to the Lord. He shall offer the fat covering the entrails and the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, the long lobe of the liver, and he shall remove the kidneys. Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire, is a food offering and a pleasing aroma to God. And we have more that we could read into and talk about this, but this is a food offering. The word is, and for the sacrifice, is shalem. It is the derivation of the Hebrew word shalom, which obviously means peace. This was considered a sacrifice of completion, supplying that which is lacking. Fellowship with God had been broken. It was restored by the sin offering and the trespass offering. And so this would indicate that restoration of fellowship. Because in this sacrifice, the peace offering was a meal eaten with God by the Israelite family. This had to do with the nation of Israel in total or the Israelite singular and his family. And so there might be some reasons for this peace offering. One is in fellowship with God, and maybe they've come out, they've been out of fellowship, they've offered the sin offering, the trespass offering, and now they're restored, and they want to celebrate. So it's pure thanksgiving. I've decided, maybe it's a day that they're just feeling great, they're thankful to God as they look up to the heavens, and they just know that God is there and has blessed them, and they just want to say thank you, and they decide that I'm going to the courtyard and offer a peace offering to God to thank Him. And an animal is going to be slaughtered. And that very same day, they're going to take and eat part of that animal in the temple courtyard. And so what they're doing as in the heave offering when it was lifted up to God and brought back down. This was God giving it to him, and then as they bring it down, and the priest gives it to the worshiper, he's giving that meat back to the worshiper as his memorial portion, as his portion that God is giving him. So they're eating it with God and all the other things that go right along with it. They might offer a peace offering when they're offering a vow. It could be a free will. They just decided to do it. They would have followed the grain offering. The grain offering and the peace offerings always went together. There's something about a fellowship meal together. About a meal together. We're having fellowship right now. And that's good. That's great. We say hi and we get together. But there's something, would not you agree, that's a little bit richer when we go someplace. Maybe we go into the back and we have a meal together. Maybe we go to a restaurant or someone's home and we have that meal together. Because you have more time and there's that intimacy and sharing together. And that fellowship. That goes to a deeper level. And that's the way the peace offering was with God. So with the burnt burnt offering, the grain offering offered by the individuals and the nation... The peace offering offered individuals and by families and individuals, very symbolic of that fellowship that they would have with God. So we briefly considered these sacrifices today. There are a number of realities that we could look at, and we could develop lessons around each and every one of them and go deeper and deeper. 
But these shadows were shadows. The shadow of the worship sacrifices, Jesus and we are the reality. And so here's the picture as you and I look at it. All that I am belongs to God. All that you are belongs to God. All that you and I have belongs to God. And when I recognize those two truths, I'm at a deep level of fellowship with God. And so isn't that point as to what we call discipleship? In Luke chapter 9, in Luke chapter 9, I sure hope I marked it. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. The cost of following Jesus, my paragraph heading says, by the publishers of the English Standard Version, yours may say something similar. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to my to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his puts his hand back to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus saying he demands us. He demands all of us, our total being. He demands our best. He demands undivided commitment. And that was what was tied up in all of these worship sacrifices that we've looked at this morning. That's the concept of discipleship, total, complete commitment. Later on in chapter 14, Jesus would define it as this. Saying in verse 26 and following, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down, count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to, began to build and was not able to finish. For what king will go out to encounter another king in war and will not sit down first and deliberate, deliberate whether or not he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Discipleship is expensive. It demands from us every ounce of us. And Jesus was giving them a warning to saying, if you want to be my disciple, you better count the cost and know what you're getting into. Because it's going to cost you a lot. The reality of the worship sacrifices in Leviticus is a shadow of every area of our lives as Christians. Who we are and whose we are. What we give and how intimately we engage in our relationship with God. It's all tied up in that. And then finally we turn to Romans chapter 12. A passage that we're familiar with. That points us back to the all that we all in the burnt offering. 
Paul saying in verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Present your bodies, present yourself as that living sacrifice. The reality for us is that we are a burnt offering before God. The burnt offering in Israel was never to go out. The fire of the burnt offering was to be ongoing. It was to be continual. And so it is in our life. It is to be a total commitment. I know it's redundant to say it because commitment says total, right? We just give it emphasis by adding the total to it. God, it must be first and foremost in our lives. Our commitment to him must never go out. And as I said in my introduction, maybe the Israelites had it a little easier because it was tangible to see when they offered that sacrifice. But unfortunately, they didn't know what that was pointing to. When the burnt offering was done, maybe they just offered it and it was over. And they didn't fully comprehend that it was ascending to God as a sweet savor, a fragrant aroma, as it says. And what that meant. This is you in this animal. This is you in the grain offering. Jesus told us in John chapter 4 and verse 24 that the true worshipers must worship God in spirit and in truth. Two theologians from a long time ago, A.W. Pink 1886 to 1952 said, Worship is a redeemed heart occupied with God, expressing itself in adoration and thanksgiving. I like that. A.W. Tozer said, True worship is to be so personally and hopelessly in love with God that the idea of a transfer of affection never even remotely exists. But they're nice quotes, but I don't think we can do them until we see the reality of the shadow by what created that shadow, and that was Christ. The sacrifices in the Old Testament were a sacrifice that Jesus would make by leaving heaven, dying on a cross for you and me. You offer yourself to him when you become his disciple, as you live in him, and you present your offerings to God of your life and your possessions. And so appropriately, we have our invitation song, I am thine, O Lord. That's what it is. I don't know where you are today. But hopefully this brief look at the shadows of the Old Testament pointing to Christ has strengthened your faith in him, has made you realize what worship is all about. I don't know what your needs are today, but God does. If you're in need of the invitation of Jesus, won't you please come to him while we stand and while we sing.